This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. It was a busy November on the news front, what with midterm elections, the fall meeting of the U.S. bishops and the election of a new U.S. CCB president, observance of the 60th anniversary of Vatican II and the commentary that it generated, and that wasn't all. Here to speak with us and help make sense of it is Commonweal contributing writer Massimo Fagioli, professor of historical theology at Villanova and a frequent guest on our podcast. And after my talk with Massimo, stick around for a special guest, Manhattan College theology professor Natalia Imperatori-Lee, who reflects on the importance to her of the late Chicana activist and artist Yolanda Lopez, who was the subject of a profile in the October issue of Commonweal. That's all coming up on the Commonweal podcast. Massimo Fagioli, thanks for joining us on the Commonweal podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the fall bishops meeting wrapped up a couple of weeks ago, and among the main orders of business was electing a new president, who we'll get to in a few minutes. But I'm wondering what you made of the proceedings, especially in light of your recent piece for Commonweal, in which you contend that we are now in what you call a post-Episcopal church. So what they wrote was not a wish, it's not my wish, because I think that for Catholicism, it's very important to maintain the apostolicity and the fact that bishops have a unique role in the Catholic Church. It's an acknowledgement of what's happening, especially in light of the American situation, because what I see is a growing disconnect between the agenda and the way Many bishops talk about the church and the country and the lives of people and what I see is reality. So that I think is a danger because it would mean that other voices, other agendas that are not more Catholic than the bishops will take over. And I think Baltimore 2022 has confirmed that in some sense, not just because of the outcomes of elections, but because of, I mean, following a certain script that I don't think reflects the concerns of Catholics in this country and of Pope Francis, I think. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll go to a follow-up here because I think it's fair to say that many American Catholics are wondering, you know, just how relevant the bishops are at this point. You know, I think we remember an era when the conference was producing documents on the economy, on the arms race, nuclear weapons. And now it seems all that can be expected are efforts like these multi-million dollar plans for a national Eucharistic Congress and a reminder that abortion remains the preeminent issue when it comes to voting. I mean, aren't there other things they could be devoting some energy to? <laughs> are, are there things that we're overlooking? Certainly they are overlooking issues like the situation, the state of democracy of our, our living together in one country. This assembly took place just a few days after the midterm elections. And that said something on what the Catholic Church is or isn't in the situation of this country. I think synodality was largely sidestepped or ignored. And let's remember that this is the biggest thing in the global Catholic Church today. So the civil experiences in this country have been diverse, in some cases very strong, some cases totally absent. So I'm not surprised that bishops don't change the teaching of the church on some issues. That's obvious, but that 
it seems to be the impossibility to see something different than the usual script. That is, is what is surprising. In a recent interview with America Magazine, Pope Francis also made some comments about, about some things happening here. And what are your thoughts? Maybe you could explain a little bit of what Francis said, too. Maybe you can respond. I think Francis remarks in the interview published on the 28th of November by America was interesting because clearly he's following what's happening in the U.S. Bishop Conference. Wisely, he would not say anything on the choice of the new president of the Bishop Conference, but clearly he's concerned with the persisting situation of polarization among American Catholics. And he clearly sees differences between different models of bishops in the West Church. And he made one example with bishop sites as a good example of a pastoral way of being bishop. And it went unnamed those who he thinks are more political, more ideological in the sense of using hot button wedge issues to further a situation of division. So here, Francis. He's well aware since 2013 that for his pontificate, the U.S. Bishop Conference is a particular delicate case, and it will continue to be during the rest of this pontificate, and I think also the next ones, because this is, has more to do with these bishops of today than with whoever is in the Vatican. So let's talk about the new president, Archbishop Timothy Broglio of the Archdiocese for Military Services. Of all the candidates, how did he wind up being elected? And what are some of the items on his agenda? And maybe you could talk about the direction of the conference in the context of, of his presidency. He was elected because the majority of the U.S. Bishop Conference is where he is. In his positions on the sex abuse crisis, on homosexuality, I think that it is really interesting that the U.S. Bishops uh, did not elect some other candidates that were more extreme in their outspokenness, let's say that, on the media, social media, and so on. But in terms of substance, I mean, Broglio is not more moderate than these most outspoken bishops. The real moderate choice would have been Bishop Laurie of Baltimore, who's the right of center bishop, but has demonstrated some wisdom in these last few years in dealing with some issues. What is very clear is that whenever a bishop or a cardinal who is uh, visibly close to Pope Francis runs for any possible position, they lose. One could make a lot of money out of the, if we could bet on the bishop's elections. And so this has become a fixture. That has become a rule. And so this is not a, a, an issue of personality, but of policies, because if one looks at how Bishop Rolio dealt with the pandemic and vaccination, for example, or his interpretation of the sex abuse crisis, these are clearly disconnected with the way most American Catholics see that, with the way Pope Francis sees that. So, and that didn't happen because of an accident. That was a, because Bishop Rolio has been a bishop for 20 years now. He has a very clear CV as people diplomat, as archbishop of the, the military since 2007. He's very well known. 
And so that was a conscious choice. And that was just one example because other elections have confirmed that the US bishops in its majority still, as it was in 2013, shaped by a certain view of things that was created by the choices made by John Paul II and Pope Benedict in the bishop appointments. So maybe we could look at another election <laughs> recently, the U.S. midterms. And since I know you think about U.S. Catholicism in this context and the conference in regard to what's happening in American politics as well, and I'm wondering if there's anything you observed in particular on these results and where American Catholics are politically. So these midterms were interesting because there were the midterms of the second Catholic president, Joe Biden. And of course, they sent a signal uh, about what could happen in two years with the presidential elections of 2024. One question that has to be addressed is in what uh, local situation, particular states, Catholics relate to the national conversation that is dividing our communities and even the Catholic Church on gender, on economics. So here there is, I think, one interesting narrative that is Joe Biden as a 20th century Catholic trying to rebuild a kind of New Deal coalition for Catholics. And that might work in some local situations. And on the other side, a party that is post-20th century, that is thinking about a post-colonial, post-Wasp America. Now, I think it's interesting that some states where Catholics are a sizable portion have become more complicated for Democrats to win, like Florida, Ohio, and Texas, the Southwest. So this is important. Now, one final remark, it could be very interesting in two years, but of course we will talk about that much earlier, we could have two Catholic candidates for president for the first time, Joe Biden and Ron DeSantis, two completely different kind of Catholics, two completely different generations. That would be really worth watching because that would say something on, on the centrality of Catholicism in this country, but a split centrality. Something else this fall, okay, was the 60th anniversary of Vatican II. And uh, which prompted many of Pope Francis's critics once again to criticize the council. Is And one of your regular sparring partners, Ross Douthat, had columns titled How Vatican II Failed Catholics and How Catholics Became Prisoners of Vatican II. And this is all getting pretty routine and to be expected. It's like the remark you made before about betting on the outcome of the USCCB elections. We can anticipate this. But so how do you respond to these interpretations and what are these critics missing in your opinion? How might they be misleading and how does that influence the direction of Catholicism in this country, you think? Well, the good news is that we're still talking about the Vatican II in uh, newspapers, magazines. So this is something that was not taken for granted just 10 years ago. So this is the good news. What is interesting is this, is that the most vocal, outspoken critics of the Second Vatican Council lay and clergy bishops in mainstream media, they talk about the Vatican II avoiding completely the theology of the Second Vatican Council. It is not criticizing, like, I don't know, a car by talking uniquely about the internal furniture, not talking about the engine, 
or the safety or so i mean here there is gross doubt that is just one example but we could name others that talk exclusively in terms of what happened to american society after the 60s and they identify what happened in one particular country in these last few few decades with the effects of the Second Vatican Council, ignoring completely what Vatican II has really changed in a positive way, like reading scripture and all of that. So it reveals two things. One, that the public conversation on Catholicism in this country is still dominated by political concerns, which is not always the case because other countries don't address Catholicism in this way. Second, that this debate on Catholicism in mainstream media is dominated by a certain kind of Catholics and it is conspicuous the absence of those who know more. And I don't mean only lay Catholic theologians, but also some bishops. I would expect that one bishop, one cardinal could write to the New York Times saying, look, I might have a say on the Second Vatican Council. And we have never seen that. It is conspicuous. This is something strange. But again, I welcome that we are talking about Vatican II because he has come back with Pope Francis on the liturgy. That is something that was not expected. Ten years ago, I did not expect that. There are ups and downs in this new moment in this debate. Recently, too, there's been news on the persisting crisis of sexual abuse in the church, including the release of a report by Maryland's attorney general following a four-year investigation on the history of abuse in the Baltimore archdiocese. I don't know if you've been following this, but if, if you have, how do you see this in the context of the overall scandal? And what else are you observing, you know, not only nationally, but worldwide on the subject of abuse? So the report was interesting because Baltimore, which is just one of the two dioceses of Maryland, was the first diocese that was founded in this country. So it has, I mean, symbolically an uh, importance that other dioceses don't have. And so in the last few years, almost 20 states in this country have initiated grand jury reports or something like that. And so this Baltimore is one of them and it will continue. So this, I mean, uh, the West will follow its own path, which is is determined by the time-consuming efforts of these investigations. But there's other things happening in the world why Catholicism. One thing that I follow closely is that on the 17th of November, the Italian Bishop Conference, for the first time in history, presented its report. Italy is almost 20 or, or 30 years behind other countries. And this is interesting because you see clearly that it Italian bishops have been extremely reluctant to accept this. They have done this. It's just the beginning. I think it's a landmark because when something happens in the Italian church, which has been perceived always by the Vatican as the backyard of the Vatican, well, the threshold of deniability that these things don't happen here is gone. And so it, it's just... In the beginning, there will be another report in these next couple of years on the previous 20 years, which is not as long as it was for the John Jay report or the French, but for the Italian church is an extremely important moment because it sends signals worldwide. It has become clear that 
there are some who are interpreting the synodal process as integral part of dealing with the abuse crisis, and others are trying to ignore that. I think that these two things will stay connected. I don't think that the synodal steps between now and 2024 will be able to ignore this because this is not just a legal issue or it's a cultural theological issue. Internationally as well. So there's some news uh, on the topic of the of the German bishops and their ad limina visit uh, to Rome to discuss some issues and conflicts over Germany's synodal way. Is there a way you could briefly describe what's going on here and maybe predict a little bit about what this might mean for the Vatican's relationship with the German church? The German church started its synodal process even before Pope Francis launched it. So it started between 2018 and 2019 exactly as a reaction against the landmark report on abuse. And so they have structure their own synodal way path in a very, I should say, German way with many committees, an overall council, assemblies every six months and so on. So that has scared many people in the Vatican. And as we know, also in this country, some bishops have written open letters because German bishops, uh, with the support of many theologians, but also with a majority within the Episcopate, they have approved the proposals for substantial changes in the access of women to ministry, in the formation of the priests, in the teaching of the church. And so they have gone to a certain extent already in solidifying these proposals as proposals of the German church, not just of a few individuals, but of the German church. And so what has happened in the Vatican in this last year, more or less, is that Pope Francis has given them room to continue. Other cardinals in the Vatican, especially Cardinal Ladaria of the Doctrine of the Faith, and Cardinal Willett, the Canadian prefect of the Dicastery of, of the Bishops, have tried and repeatedly even in visit of the German bishop in Rome in the middle of November to stop the synodal process in Germany, which is something that has been rejected. And so this is interesting. So it will continue. Germany knows well what Rome or some in Rome think about that and vice versa, but it will continue. Now, what's interesting is that the week after the German bishops left Rome, the Belgian bishops were in their ad limina visit in the Vatican and we, even without the old structure, the sort of process of Germany, many Belgian bishops said exactly the same thing to the Vatican. It's no longer the German church. It has become an issue that is across countries, languages, cultures. So it's becoming more difficult for some Vatican cardinals to dismiss that as usual German progressives. It's become bigger than that. And so it's not clear what's going to happen because ultimately, I mean, some of, of these proposals, I think, might be stopped by the Vatican on win ordination for sure, I think. On all the rest, I think it would be much more difficult to say you cannot do that because on women ordination, there are clear 
magisterial obstacles that are very difficult to overcome, but on women diaconate and so on, there are no obstacles. And so there will be, I think, a very interesting moment in 2023 and 24 when I think something will happen because I don't expect Rome to be so foolish to say, well, you have discussed, but nothing will come out of that. So Massimo, what do you think then, to bring this full circle, how this might all play into what happens in American Catholicism? It's very interesting because what you see in other bishop conferences, you have bishops that, like Germany or Belgium, France, Italy, that may or may not be as progressives as German bishops on the synodal issues. But clearly they are committed to the whole process and they are leading their episcopates in this. Now, I'm not sure that Bishop Rollio embodies a kind of Episcopal leadership that is committed to the civil process. Because one thing is to be active and convinced and contributing in one way that could be optimistic or pessimistic. One other thing is being totally absent from the whole conversation. This is what I'm afraid might happen in these next two years with the U.S. Church. If the U.S. Catholic bishops are missing this opportunity, I think it will leave U.S. Catholicism behind or outside of this process, which would be a big difference with what happened with the Second Vatican Council. So it remains to be seen if the rest of the bishops and of the church can push the U.S. Episcopate to be more active in this, or if the situation of very local situations that are very different will continue. I really hope there is a national effort also at the Bishop Conference level. Massimo, thanks so much for being with us on the Commonweal podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. We'll be back in a minute with Natalia Imperatori Lee. I'm Ellen Koenig, Executive Director of Commonweal. With our centennial just around the corner in 2024, now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program. Thank you very much for your support. It helps make everything we do at Commonweal, our publications, our programming, and this podcast possible. Monday, December 12th, is the Feast of Guadalupe, a figure of great importance to the late Chicana activist and artist Yolanda Lopez. Natalia Imperatori Lee is here with a personal reflection on the work of Lopez, who worked images of Guadalupe into her paintings as a way to call attention to the holiness of everyday life. My name is Natalia Imperatori Lee. I'm professor of religious studies at Manhattan College, and I have written and continue to think a lot about the work of Yolanda Lopez, particularly her Guadalupe triptych. I first came across the work of Lopez when I was writing my book, Cuéntame, probably in around 2014 or 2015. One of the chapters of the book focuses on this short story about competing visions of Mary, competing Marian devotions in Puerto Rico, one to the Immaculate Conception and then an arrival kind of devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe. And in researching the kind of imagery that is put forth in that story called The Battle of the Virgins by Rosario Ferre, I came upon the self-portrait 
of Lopez as Guadalupe, which is the center of the triptych with the young woman in kind of running clothes with the cape strewn over her shoulder, almost like a superhero cape. It was so arresting because it was so dynamic compared to how static so many images of Guadalupe are. And so many Marian images are. We see Mary with her eyes downcast so much in Catholicism or looking at Jesus, but rarely do you get that full-on eye contact and the dynamism that is depicted in that self-portrait that Yolanda Lopez did. So I was immediately drawn to her work and I wanted more of it. So I included her in the book, in that chapter. Since then, I continue to think about it. What strikes me about her work on Guadalupe is many things. First of all, that it crystallizes a theme of Latinx theology that we have been talking about, Latino theologians have been talking about for generations at this point, which is the sacredness of the everyday or the sacredness of lo cotidiano. It's explicit in the material, right? So Lopez draws or so she is drawing with oil pastels on campus, a self-portrait, a portrait of her mother, Margaret Singer, at a sewing machine, also as Guadalupe, and a portrait of her grandmother sitting in repose after having skinned a snake, also as Guadalupe. Three very ordinary women engaged in wearing ordinary clothes, engaged in kind of ordinary work. And she deliberately, Lopez deliberately did this in an effort to, as she said, lift up the ordinary. One thing I read when I was doing that research is an interview she gave to a newspaper where she says, to honor the ordinary, that's what interests me. I'm not interested in the extraordinary. And I think that it's difficult to find a more succinct explanation of the sacredness of the everyday than that. For Latino theology, what is holy and where we find grace is not in the extraordinary moment, but rather in that kind of everyday invisible moment. And I don't think you can get more everyday invisibility than the average working woman, which is what Yolanda Lopez is after. So she wants to make sacred the private sphere. She wants to sort of sacralize that which is overlooked, which nine times out of 10 is the lives of women. And she does it in a really beautiful way. What hit me in the past maybe year and a half about Lopez is that she is also in a demographic that we would now characterize, or sociologists, I guess, would now characterize as the duns. So in recent months, this sociologist, I believe I'm saying his name wrong, but we're going to go for it. Daniel Daryl Van Tongeren elaborated a new category of disaffiliated Christians that weren't necessarily the nuns who are unaffiliated because they were never affiliated, but rather the duns, those who had left religion behind. And he says that these are a different kind of religiously disaffiliated people because according to this sociologist, a residue of religiosity kind of remains with them. And they're still sort of what I would call the mental furniture of religion stays in the way that they see the world. I think this is evident in Lopez. When I was reading Karen Ray Davalos, wrote a great book about Lopez, 
and her life, Davalos is a historian. She said that Lopez didn't set out to create explicitly religious art. It was activism. And her point was that Guadalupe's image was everywhere. It was on the outside of bodegas. It was on car decals. It was on tattoos in the 70s. It was ubiquitous. So the sacred image was already woven into her everyday life. She was just trying to do the reverse and weave everyday life into that sacred image. She didn't want to make religious art, though, because several years before, she had left the church because a priest declined to give last rites to her dying cousin. So she represents this kind of incipient phenomenon of people who are victims of ecclesial violence of some kind or another, who feel they can no longer remain in the church or feel like the church has left them, quite frankly, or abandoned them in a time of need, but who nevertheless retain that sacramental imagination that ability to see the sacred in the everyday, the ability to see the everyday as sacred, as graced, and to see God working in her mother at the sewing machine, or her grandmother sitting at rest, or herself being active and exercising and running vibrantly through the world. That, to me, is a profoundly theological point. And when I think about the Holy Spirit, when I think about where to look for the residue of grace in an increasingly disaffiliated culture, I look to people like Lopez who are finding and sacralizing the ordinary grace in ordinary overlooked lives. Yolanda Lopez was the subject of a feature by Nicole Ann Lobo in our October issue, which is also available on our website. Also on the website, a piece by Timothy Matavina entitled Encounters Between Equals, in which he discusses how the Guadalupe tradition illuminates notions of an aesthetic solidarity that is necessary for democratic politics. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening to the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>